0: Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Healthier Together podcast. I'm your host, Liz Moody, and I'm a cookbook author and longtime journalist. And today I am so excited to welcome my personal dermatologist, Dr. Samantha Ellis, to the podcast. Dr. Ellis is a board-certified medical and cosmetic dermatologist. In addition to her private practice, she's a clinical instructor of dermatology at UC Davis, serves as a dermatology consultant for cosmetic companies, and has published multiple peer-reviewed journal articles and authored several medical textbook chapters on things like immunology, dermatologic surgery, cosmeceuticals, and skin aging. Today, we're going to talk about all of the secret things that people are doing to solve their skincare issues and just get, like, gorgeous glowing skin. Seriously, I feel like I have been duped for years. Like, I've been out here spending so much money on creams and serums, and then I went to Dr. Ellis and I got one treatment, and it made a bigger difference in my skin than literally any of that. And if you're wondering how this fits in with the skincare episode from last year, I actually think that a lot of it makes sense together. I've personally cut way back on my at-home topicals. I'm literally using, like, I think three products total right now. And with them, I'm focused on protecting my skin from the elements like the sun and pollution. But when it comes to changing my skin or addressing problems, I'm forgoing topicals almost completely and doing in-office treatments. So it's kind of like a very low intervention and a very high intervention system. Also, like we talked about in the last episode, I'm still considering skincare a part of overall body care. It's more about the full lifestyle that we're living, how we're eating, sleeping, moving, stressing, than about what the hot new serum being marketed is. Also, we talk about this a little bit in the episode, but I want to address it here too because it is important. I got Botox for the first time just a few months ago, and I struggled immensely with the decision, both because of my fears of Botox, which we talk about in this episode, but also because I hate the idea that women aren't allowed to age in our society. I debated for years whether I should use my position as a person with an audience to celebrate my wrinkles, to applaud the signs of aging. And to be honest, maybe a better person than me would have done that. But what I ultimately decided was that it's sort of outrageous that as women, we're expected to do the work of both living in a world that judges women at every turn and the work of fighting to change those societal norms. It's a lot. So where I landed is, I'm going to continue to do the work to fight for beauty of all types to be celebrated. And I'm going to do what makes me feel beautiful and confident while I'm doing it. It's a muddled gray area, to say the least. And I know that everyone is going to have a very unique opinion on it, which I welcome. But I do want everyone to have the information of what's out there and what people are doing so that you can be armed with the knowledge to do things yourself, but also so that you're not drawing unfair, unrealistic comparisons. Hollywood actresses are not using serums or drinking water to get skin like that. They're just not, and it's not fair for you to sit around thinking that there's something wrong with you when you're using the same serums and drinking the same water and not getting the same results. Okay, rant over. Good news time. To celebrate this episode, Dr. Ellis has very kindly agreed to offer a free virtual cosmetic skin consultation to one listener. You can talk to her about your skin problems, and she can recommend topicals, treatments, and more for your specific skin and goals. To enter to win, just make sure that you are following me and Dr. Ellis on Instagram. I am at Liz Moody, and she's at Dr. Samantha Ellis. And then leave a comment on my in-feed about this episode saying one thing that you learned after listening to the full episode. Don't worry, there is a lot, a lot in here to choose from. I'll announce the winners in my story, so good luck. Dr. Ellis is amazing, as you'll hear on this episode, and I am so excited for one of you to get an up-close and personal experience of her wisdom. There is so much good stuff packed into this episode, including when you should go to an esthetician or a facialist versus a dermatologist for skin issues, how we can know if Botox or fillers are safe, from my very, as I mentioned, my very, very skeptical perspective, Her thoughts on at-home treatments like light therapy, microneedling, and more, the best treatment for sunspots, redness or rosacea, acne, acne scarring, crepey neck or chest skin, fine lines and wrinkles, large pores, a genius tip. This is at the end, so it it is worth listening to the whole thing just for this, but a genius tip to keep your hands looking amazing, and so much more. So without further ado, let's get right into it. All right, Dr. Ellis, thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the podcast today. I'm honored to be
1: here. Thank you for having
0: me. So, for people who don't know, Dr. Ellis is my personal dermatologist. And I think even just like briefly has changed my skin for the better and also just like opened my eyes to all of the stuff you can do to skin, which is going <laughs> to be the focus of this episode in a lot of ways. Cause I'm just like, who, why didn't anybody tell me all this stuff? Like, did everybody know this secret and just I didn't?
1: Truly. I know. I feel like it's this very mysterious world out there. And so many people come in and they're like, I just found out my friends have been doing X, Y, and Z. And like, how did I not know about this? It's, I don't know why the word isn't out there more.
0: I really don't. I genuinely don't. And it also like, every time you look at like a Hollywood celebrity and they're in like a magazine and they're like, yeah, my secret is I like drink a lot of water. And I'm like, is it that? Or like, are you getting your own blood injected in your face? You know? (laughs) It's so true. And, you know, I
1: treat some people who are in the public eye quite a bit, and I've seen them say things like that. And I'm like, well, you know, as a doctor, I have to keep patient privacy. But like, it's, Does it's, it annoy my, it's, you? it's a little like I don't take it personally, but it's a little frustrating, mostly because I feel like it's putting this beauty standard out there that this is achievable because I'm just living a healthy lifestyle, not because I have any augmentation or something like that. And I just feel like
0: that makes people feel inadequate. Yeah. I think we live in a world that puts beauty up on a pedestal. And I also think, I've talked about this a lot with my audience, but I think it's crazy to put the burden of changing that societal standard on women while at the same time having them live in a society that's essentially judging them based on how they look. They look. But I think that if all of that exists, like at least we can give people the information, you know? Totally. And I kind of struggle with that too,
1: because I'm so about empowering women and making people feel confident in their body and in their own skin. But in the same way, like you're saying, there is still this sort of societal shade over women that we expect them to be beautiful and youthful forever. And so I feel like at least while that standard is still exists, let me, let me help you out.
0: Yes, for sure. Okay, so we're going to get into like all things in office treatments, but I want to start with an easy one. And I I have no idea the answer to this, but like, when do you go see a dermatologist for aesthetic work? I know for people listening, you're also a medical dermatologist, right? That's what it's called. So, like, you do skin (laughs) cancer checks and if you have a funky mole, go see a dermatologist. Don't go see an esthetician. But for <laughs> the same person, <laughs> but I'm glad you clarified that because that yes. still doesn't happen all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Don't go see your friend at the bar and ask what they think <laughs> of your mole. Go see a dermatologist. But you also do what's called aesthetic dermatology. So when would you go see an aesthetic dermatologist versus an esthetician for a skin issue?
1: That's a really good question. So I think I think of estheticians and like the the difference really is that if you are a board certified dermatologist, there is a very rigorous set of training that you have. And so you know that that person has been trained at least to these standards. And of course, like estheticians have to get licensed and certified as well, but the training can really, really vary. I think if you just have dull skin or some mild breakouts and you just want to look a little bit more glowy and your goal is to do minimally, like the most minimally invasive things, whether that's facial work or mild chemical peel, or you just want to talk about skincare, that, you know, an esthetician might be a good place to start. And a good esthetician will tell you, hey, your concerns are beyond what I can do. Mm. Let me have you see a dermatologist. And that's how a lot of people end up in my practice, because there are some amazing estheticians that practice in my area who understand what the limitations and what their scope really is. However, if you have deep wrinkles, if you have tons of sun damage, I think the best thing you can do is start with a dermatologist. And there are plenty of people who come see me and I say, hey, you actually look awesome. Like you just need some little skin tweaks. Go see an aesthetician. If you're trying to do more or you just want the most information, maybe start with a derm. But I'm I love working with an esthetician. We have one in our office and I think they both play a really good role in sort of helping people feel better about their skin.
0: I think of estheticians as focusing more on like the products you would use at home. Is that true or would you say that you also give recommendations in that realm?
1: I also give recommendations, but it's not what I would specialize in. Like I don't want people making appointments with me to just talk about their skincare like skin routine. Yeah, if I see that, I usually will say, Hey, let's set you up with our esthetician first. And then if there's additional things that you want to do that we don't think we can do with just skincare, then come see a dermatologist. Cause the interventions we're doing are slightly, they're different. And my, I'm trained in skin disease, but also skin aesthetics and skin aesthetics is, is so much more than skincare.
0: Yeah. I I actually am picturing, like, it's interesting. I've never pictured training in skin aesthetics. Like, are you taking classes in med school that are like, dry skin is this? And like, <laughs> That's how the, does that yeah. work? <laughs> so you
1: actually get very little dermatology training in medical school. So after medical okay. school, you do your residency in dermatology, where you spend three years exclusively treating skin disease. And yes, you're learning like, dry skin, but way, way more than that. Like these are the proteins. This is what's going on at the DNA level. These are the Mm. genetic things that are predisposing you and all of that. Some dermatology programs train more in skin chemistry and products and things like that. But I think a lot of that actually happens after your training if you have a particular interest in it, because there are derms out there who are amazing medical dermatologists and even aesthetic dermatologists who could give two zero cares, I should say, about like skin products per se. And then there are derms who understand that it's part of the aesthetic world and their aesthetic patients are going to want to talk about it. And so they take extra time to learn about it.
0: And if I'm looking up a dermatologist, do I need to look up like aesthetic dermatologist versus, (laughs) you know, medical dermatologist to find, so I don't go to like the skin cancer one for aesthetics or do most do both?
1: I think some dabble in both. I think there are some who mostly do cosmetics. There are some who exclusively do medical. It actually can be really confusing and really hard. I think starting with the American Academy of Dermatology website, it's just aad.org, will tell you all of the board-certified dermatologists In the area. And then usually you have to go to the website to get a sense of like, what does this practice offer? And sort of what does, I would hope that, you know, dermatologists have the ethical sort of background to not do cosmetic procedures if they're not comfortable with it, or they don't do extra training to pursue that. But yes, I think it, it, unfortunately, the onus falls a little bit on the patient to kind of look into that more.
0: Do you think facials in general are worth it? Or should we like, is it just relaxing or is it effective? Would you say, and should we be saving our money for those like in office treatments? with you? Yeah. Like,
1: is it therapeutic? And yeah. I kind of, I, to me, I think of facial sort of like in the same way I think of massage where some people will find it like truly therapeutically beneficial for their skin, the way you would find it for your body. And some people it's more of like a relaxing ritual. The other thing is like facials can really vary. Like, are they doing some type of chemical exfoliation? Are are they giving you extractions? Are they using light therapy? So I think the value of facials can really like vary based on who's doing it, what their personal experience is, because the experience of estheticians varies significantly right. as well. Um, but I would say, yeah, I have a lot of people who come to me and they're like, oh, I've been trying facials and I'm not getting where I want to go, and I'm like, yeah, I can understand why. The thing, your goals that you're trying to target are nothing that a facial can really deal with or address me- in a meaningful way what's a
0: goal that a facial could address in a meaningful way?
1: I think texture. So if you're having like congestion or like you just feel like your pores are clogged or your skin just looks a little bit dull, I definitely think facials can really help with that because they can help with exfoliation. And during that time to me, like use your facial, if you, if you don't want to just purely be relaxing, like you can interview your esthetician and mm. basically be like, well, what would you do for this? Or you're working on this. Like, how can I maintain that? So you also should get some like advice during your uh, facial if you want that but if you're going in for pigment issues um, or a lot of sun damage or wrinkles that's not really where you're going to see long-term results from a facial yes you might have some like initial plumping just from what the topical skincare that you're getting but you're probably not going to see like long-term benefits from that
0: okay so we're going to go through like I want to do this two ways so we're going to start with like things that we might want to address. And then we'll see what treatments come up during that. And then we'll, if we haven't tackled certain treatments, we'll kind of tackle those individually too. Perfect. Okay. So let's start with sunspots. If somebody has sunspots, what's your favorite way to deal with that?
1: So I think of sunspots as like freckles or like the more permanent, what people think of as like liver spots or like those dark spots on their cheeks that come up. And I think there's probably two ways that I like to do it. One is IPL, which is intense pulse light. Um, that's what so you that's, did to me. That's what you had. Yeah. You were a perfect, I mean, you were the perfect candidate for it because you have somewhat fair skin and then these darker sunspots. And so really when you're using any light based device, the way an IPL machine works, you're sort of targeting the contrast between your dark spots and your light background skin. And is that why
0: that worked better on my chest, where there was more like spots and contrast versus my face, where I think I have spots? They're lighter though.
1: Yes, exactly. So there's more contrast. Um, They were, you know, there was more density of spots too. So it wasn't like just there was a sheer, the sheer number of them was higher. And also, I pretty much used the same settings on your face, neck, and chest. And neck and chest tend to be a lot more delicate. And so if you use a high setting, which I was pretty aggressive on your chest, you're going to get more oomph there.
0: My chest looked cra- like a week after it looked crazy. It was like, like all they the dark all get spots. really dark. Yeah. <laughs> and it like, but then up now it looks, I mean, we've only done one and you're supposed to do what, like three usually? Usually three. I mean, it totally depends on like where we're starting, but I think for
1: you and the amount of damage you had, three seems like a good, a good goal.
0: And it's already like such a difference. Okay. So what's treatment two for sunspots?
1: So treatment 2 is laser resurfacing and I say laser resurfacing which is super non-specific that is basically using any type of light-based device that is slightly different technology than an IPL to sort of help you shed the entire top layer of your skin or some some layer of the top layer of your skin and to like lift those brown spots but I find with laser resurfacing you're also tend to be targeting texture and fine lines and things like that so oftentimes for my younger patients like you for example who has good texture, good tone. We really w- just wanted to hone in on the dark spots. IPL is nice. And then if someone needs like a little more oomph, maybe they're in their forties or fifties, sixties, seventies, and they, they need a little bit more, something that's going a little bit deeper then more aggressive laser resurfacing is usually how I go.
0: And what if they have like my face where I think that I just saw so much more dramatic results in my chest. Cause my face has less contrast. Is there something that works for sunspots, but it's like not as much contrast?
1: Yeah, so it's hard because if you have any degree of contrast, you really can do this. So it really hap- it's more about tweaking the settings. So like for example, because you had that reaction on your face, I know for your next treatment, I can like amp it up a little bit. Okay. And not have an issue but always because it's when it's a first treatment like the priority is safety and establishing sort of like a safety baseline and then you can work on the efficacy of the treatment after you've sort of seen how someone reacts.
0: So you'll probably get the same settings. Well, and I was like <laughs> terrified. So I feel like I feel like it was good that you were focused on safety because I was like having a panic attack in your office. <laughs> no, so, you were um... <laughs> you
1: did amazingly well, but when I saw your chest after the treatment and how red you were getting, which is a normal reaction, but I, if you have any, you know, low-grade anxiety before treatment that amount of redness can really scare somebody I was like man I'm really glad I didn't crank too hard on her
0: (laughs) okay well okay let's talk about safety for a second because I do find it interesting that you are like we've talked about you're a medical derm and an aesthetic derm and I think my first thought with all this is like is this having are we sure this isn't causing something like skin cancer down the line or something that's dangerous or scary for us so can you speak to that
1: Absolutely. So I think, you know, whenever technology is relatively new, these light based devices have been around for a couple decades, but they haven't been around forever. So we don't have you know tons of long term data, whatever long term means to somebody to really say like this is safe or this is not safe. But the thing with things like skin cancer is they are so prevalent. You know, one in five Americans is going to get skin cancer in their lifetime. And these treatments are so prevalent as well. You can really see it if there was any correlation or anything going on. So the hmm. fact that these are performed so widely throughout this country, but also really throughout the world, there's a lot of opportunity to find correlations or cause, you know, even more importantly, the causation issue. And that's just never been shown to, to be a thing. And we actually use laser resurfacing for some people to treat precancerous growth. So it's only been beneficial in the, in the studies that we have so far.
0: How does that work with the treating the pre? What's happening there?
1: So when you have a precancer on the skin, it's basically, you know, your top layer of skin is many layers thick. And usually when you have a pre-cancer, the very base of your top layer of skin is atypical. And so with laser resurfacing, you're essentially like blasting off that top layer of skin. So you're removing those atypical cells and just sort of Mm. taking them off. And that's what we do in skin cancer surgery. When we're removing a skin cancer, we're going in and we're cutting it out. Um, But when they're pre-cancers, you can actually exfoliate them off essentially, but it has to be very aggressive like with a laser.
0: That's so interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay. So is there anything that like – you are, I guess, more skeptical of that. You're like, well, we don't have, like, I keep thinking of, I don't know when I read this article, but there was some article that was like, in the 1920s, we used x-rays as beauty treatments. And we were like, <laughs> hope this is great. And then later we're like, wow, that wasn't a great idea. Like, is there anything that makes you wary that you're like, I wish I had more data on that? I'm trying
1: to think of anything we use. I <laughs> Not currently. I mean, I think there's always new technology that comes up where you're like, is that really going to work? Or is that really going to be effective? Or can this cause long term problems? I think we have such a better understanding of the science that we're using now that it's less likely to happen. But yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Because I have patients who were treated even in like the 70s with radiation for their acne. um, And they're coming in with skin cancers on their back now because of it. So absolutely. Uh, which is funny because radiation is also a treatment for skin cancer. But uh, using the technology in the appropriate way becomes really important.
0: Yeah, the dose. The dose. Mm-hmm. I had a drugs in the brain class in college and he was like, the poison is in the dose for everything that you consume.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah. when we talk about Botox and things like that, it's, it's in the dose.
0: Yeah, we're going to get into the safety of Botox later because my audience (laughs) was like, ah, which I get because I was like that too. That was like a very scary thing for me. But we understand, I guess, when we can't get long-term data, the thing I'm always interested in is if we understand at like a cellular level exactly what we're doing and exactly how those cells are responding. And would you say that we like totally understand that for all of the lasers and things like that?
1: Yes. And the other thing is, you know, the lasers that we use now are, are way more targeted therapy. So the whole point of a laser is you're taking one single wavelength of light and you're using it to target something very, very specific. And so when you have a more specific target, the chance that you have ill effects that expand beyond your target go way, way down. Versus if you look at like x-rays where you're just like zapping the entire body and you kind of don't understand what's happening to the rest. So I think because we're using more targeted therapies, and that goes for everything we're doing, cancer therapeutics, any medication we give now, Mm. but also in the cosmetic world, I think the chance of having side effects that are unexpected becomes less.
0: Okay. Let's get back into things we'd like to address. What about redness or rosacea?
1: One thing you can do for
0: redness and rosacea
1: is IPL. The same thing that you do for brown spots. So the whole point of IPL is that it's a broad spectrum target, so it can hit brown spots and it can hit reds, so dilated blood vessels in the skin. The way I like to treat rosacea, and rosacea also, I should say, you know, medically speaking, it exists on a spectrum. There's people who get bumps and acne-like pimples and things like that, and that's all medical treatment with topicals and sometimes oral medication. But when we're talking just addressing the redness with procedures... V-beam, which is another laser that targets redness in the skin, is what we use in my practice. There are other types of lasers that target redness as well. There's one called a KTP laser that's very good for that. But using some type of laser that is very, very focused on, on targeting redness. And usually you need more than one treatment.
0: And for all of these, let's also like going back to sunspots too, like, is this something that you're like, this is a good thing for an in-office treatment versus just trying to address like at home with creams and serums and stuff like that?
1: Absolutely. I think, you know, as a dermatologist, my goal first is like, what is the most minimally invasive way I can get you to your end goal? So if I can get you there with topicals and creams, we will do it. But the problem with sunspots or you know, rosacea and blood vessels is these are structural changes that are deeper mm. in the skin. And they're just not where skincare can reach to make a meaningful effect. I think skin co- skincare is more for like protective or maintenance. I sort of think of it like brushing your teeth every day. Like, yeah, you've got to do it or there's going to be problems, but it's not the same as going to the dentist to have an intervention or something truly fixed, especially when mm. the issue is very anatomical. And so I, for most of these things, like, You just can't do it at home. And that's where people end up with me. They're like, I've spent hundreds or thousands of dollars. So much money. Yeah, Yeah. on creams and time too. You have to think like, oh my gosh, I have to use this cream for 10 years to see the benefits. And it's not to say that's not a good thing to be doing in the background. But like, if you want to get somewhere fast, uh, sometimes you just need different technology.
0: Yeah, I've I've switched my skincare to almost entirely thinking about it as protective. Like, what's my sunscreen, my environmental damage stuff like that. Yeah, uh, and then other than that, I'm just kind of like, I, yeah, I just waited so long for it to work and it did nothing.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, <laughs> and I so think so like, like totally. That's I mean that's the right expectation. I think skincare is like protective. You definitely can get some light benefits with skincare. It's totally not something to be ignored. It's really important. Uh, but in terms of like when people want like meaningful, quick sort of impactful changes, it with skincare. It just, it, it doesn't always happen. What about acne? Yes. So acne, I would say have become like an acne guru for the area because there's just so much acne. <laughs> um, I treat so many teenagers and adult females with acne. And I think acne really depends on the type of acne, where people are breaking out. When are they breaking out? You know, are they having more hormonal breakouts where it's just near their period or are they breaking out all the time? Do they have, you know, chest and back breakouts? What type of breakouts are they having? Are they cystic or not? I always think medical therapy for acne is is primary. So prescription strength topicals or prescription strength oral things. Yes, you can do chemical peels and lasers and things like that for acne, but I don't think that's the place to start.
0: Do you like like the red light, blue light stuff for acne? It can help.
1: So there's definitely data that it's anti-inflammatory and even antimicrobial. So we think of blue light as kind of killing bacteria that cause acne or lead or they don't really cause acne, but promote acne. And then red light is sort of being anti-inflammatory. So they definitely do something, but they don't really address the main problem, which is the plugging of the hair follicle. That is like the primary root of acne is a clog. And so you really need to be on some type of topical or oral therapy that's addressing that to get any long-term changes in your acne.
0: So by that, you mean like some type of cream, but your dermatologist is going to prescribe it probably or some type of supplement or like not supplement, like a a prescription medicine you would take?
1: A prescription medicine. Yeah. So usually it's like Retin-A. That's like the brand name of tretinoin, which is a vitamin A derived topical that helps unclog pores. That's sort of like a mainstay. And then there's things like benzoyl peroxide and salicylic acid that just help clean out your pores and kill bacteria on the skin. And so usually some combination of that, but there's a lot of great acne medications out there. And sometimes it's just about finding the right combo for somebody and also getting someone to stick to a regimen. Long enough to see the results manifest. Because that's the number one reason acne doesn't get better is just compliance.
0: You mentioned tretinoin, and I I think I'm I'm curious, especially because you just announced your pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And tretinoin is supposed to be, is that not good for pregnancy?
1: The data is sort of mixed. So it's a vitamin A derived topical. And the real reason we don't say it should be used in pregnancy is because when you have certain forms of oral vitamin A that you're taking in pill form, it's been shown to cause birth defects in growing fetuses. But it's not really been shown to happen with the topical version of this, which is Retin-A. However, out of like an abundance Abundance of of caution, caution. we basically just say, you know, cut it out, especially if you're using it for anti-aging, which it's great for. I mean, you can push pause on anti-aging for a year while you grow a, you know, a baby. But that's really why. So there's studies where people, you know, got through their first trimester on Retin-A and they're like, oh,
0: shoot. uh, And nothing happened with their fetus that was problematic. The reason I ask is because I think in the wellness world, a lot of times people, one, they come to wellness during pregnancy, but two, there's this thought, well, like if you can't do it while you're pregnant, then maybe you shouldn't be doing it generally. (laughs) And it's kind of like a thing that people use for safety. And I've even thought that in my past too, like, well, if I, yeah, if if retinol is bad for my face when I'm pregnant, then why should it be something I would put on my face now? But it sounds like... Totally. Totally. And it's also funny that it's because of vitamin A, because I'm not going to be like, well, don't eat carrots. Yes,
1: exactly. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. Like the amount of vitamin A that you get from carrots is way more, you know, that's way more intense than what you're going to get from topical retin-A. Because you're consuming it. Completely. Yeah. It's going through your GI tract. It's getting into your bloodstream way more than a topical is, because I always have to remind people, you know, your skin is a barrier. It's not a sponge. Otherwise, you would look enormous every time you got out of a shower. And so you just have to think of it that way.
0: But what about this stat? like, you hear those things, like, 80% of things are absorbed through your skin or – you know, like, yeah. is that – no? It's just not true. <laughs> I guess it's not true because you can't – like, when I rub my CBD cream on my skin –
1: Right. You don't get relaxed. Yeah. You
0: you need to have like a certain chemical in it. I forget what it's called, but to actually make it like go through your skin and totally make you feel right. something internally.
1: Completely. And it, also the dose, right? So like maybe, yes, if you're applying something to your entire body in a thick layer and it's being occluded over time, you might get some systemic absorption. But for most people, they're applying it to their face, which is like 1% of their
0: body surface area. So if you bathe in a vat of tretinoin, <laughs> it might have an impact on like your liver.
1: Yeah, it's possible. I would say, I just tell my patients, I'm like, don't eat your cream, you'll be fine.
0: You all already know that I'm obsessed with these. They have been my trail and life companion for literally years. I honestly don't think that I have taken a single hike in the last maybe three years without a Go Macro bar. I also have one in my purse at all times. They are so delicious and they're one of the only bars out there that actually makes me feel full and not all sugar high jittery. We'll get into my favorite flavors in a second, and I have some very strong feelings about this, but first, a bit about Go Macro. They are a mother-daughter-owned company, which I love, and all of their products are made with 100% renewable energy and sustainably sourced ingredients, which I quite possibly love even more. Macro bars are made from 100% plant-based ingredients, and they're certified organic, vegan, gluten-free, kosher, non-GMO, clean, raw, and soy-free. They also have three nut-free flavors, including oatmeal chocolate chip, maple sea salt, and sunflower butter and chocolate, and seven certified FODMAP-friendly flavors. So no matter what your dietary needs are, you can find a bar for you. Okay, let's talk about flavors. I am truly obsessed with the oatmeal chocolate chip. It has these like little oat flecks in it that are kind of crunchy, and they are so satisfying. I like crave these. Like, I would choose to eat one for dessert if it was on the menu at a restaurant. My other favorite is the double chocolate with the peanut butter chips because the peanut butter chips are life-giving. And Zach, of course, likes the, you guessed it, mocha one. Truly, these bars have ruined most other bars for me. If you want to try Go Macro's macro bars for yourself, you can get a whopping 30% off your order of $50 or more, plus free shipping by going to gomacro.com and using the code HEALTHIERTOGETHER. Again, that is gomacro.com, and the code is healthier together. And stock up on the oatmeal chocolate chip. I promise you will not regret it. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should at least be simple. That's why for more than five years now, I've been drinking AG1. It's just one scoop mixed in water, and it makes me feel energized and focused without any kind of caffeine jitters. I discovered AG1 after a ton of research because I was looking for one simple habit I could incorporate into my day that would support my entire body and cover my nutritional bases. No matter what the rest of the day looks like, I know that I'm getting essential brain, gut, and immune health support. I just mix a scoop of AG1 into my water. I think it tastes delicious too, which I know people are always nervous about, but I think it's like a tropical vanilla flavor and I crave it, especially because I associate the flavor with feeling so good. Of course, we're always trying to eat our fruits and vegetables and balanced meals over here, but nobody is perfect, so AG1 helps support me with 75 vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, and adaptogens. I especially love it for all of the travel I've been doing. I think it's a huge reason why I still feel so good and have avoided getting sick despite being on a plane a few times a week for so much of this year and having to eat out so often. AG1 is rigorously third party tested, which you know I always look out for. It also has less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, and no artificial anything. AG1 is one of the highest quality products to elevate your health, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. So, if you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free 1-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 and 5 free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com/lizmoody. That's drinkag1.com/lizmoody. Check it out. Now, let's get back to the episode. What about acne scarring? Yes. So acne
1: scarring is probably like the bane of so many of my patients' existence because it's like people who actively have acne and then people who don't have acne and they haven't had it for 20 years, they're I still... I know, it's so unfair. Yeah, it's like not fair at all. Um, and the, what the what we do for acne scarring totally depends on like how many scars, where they are, the depth of the scar. There's different types of acne scars. There's more what we call like rolling scars, which is more kind of up and down undulations of the skin versus ice pick scars, which literally look like, you know, indented pock marks. Uh, and so we really, we tailor the acne scarring treatment to essentially to what the patient has and what their downtime is too, and what their budget is. Because those are other things that are really important to think about when you're picking cosmetic treatments for someone is like, mm. okay, can you be red for a week or can you be swollen for a week? Yeah. Can you pay $1,000 a month for four months to do this? And those are all really important things because you don't want
0: someone to embark on a journey that they can't complete. That makes sense. Okay. So if you, let's say you can do, you can spend Mm -hmm. all the money in the world, Mm -hmm. what's the, and you have all the time in the world. What's like the Rolls Royce of acne scarring treatments? (laughs)
1: probably some type of aggressive resurfacing laser. Now, different types of lasers can be used in different skin colors because that's something else to think about is anytime you're putting heat to the skin, anyone who has a more melanin-rich skin tone, who has a darker skin tone is more likely to have problems with pigmentation afterwards. So you don't want to trade one problem for another, Mm. but there are definitely types of laser resurfacing that can be done even in people with deeper or darker skin tones. But some type of aggressive laser resurfacing is probably like the Rolls Royce um, radio frequency microneedling for people who have darker skin who are really nervous about pigmentary issues. That can be really helpful. Something that's doing deep penetration, deep heat into the skin, because you need heat to remodel the proteins in the skin. So that's mm. really where it's at. You cannot use topical therapy to remodel your acne scars. And like, I just need everyone to know that um, <laughs> because there's no cream that's going to do it for you.
0: Okay. So then, it, let's say if you can't use topical therapy, mm-hmm. what is like the pinto of yes. <laughs> acne scarring treatment? That's an amazing way to ask
1: that. I would say some type of chemical peel. Um, so chemical okay. peels can be kind of targeted to different depths based on what acids you're using, how you're applying them. Regular microneedling, so microneedling without radio frequency, without heat. Um, can also be helpful, but it usually just means you're going to need to do more treatments or the amount of improvement Mm -hmm. you can expect might be less. So I think a lot of people run into frustrations in the cosmetic world because they want to pay less or invest less, which is, you know, that's normal. That's that's part of life. Not everyone has the same amount to invest in that, but they want to get the same results as someone who can invest more Mm -hmm. or have more downtime. And it's frustrating for people and I get that, but it's just something to realize.
0: Okay. So are you cool with microneedling at home? or Because I've heard some derms be like, you're absolutely ruining your skin by doing that at home. And then other people be like, it's great. It's like an affordable, you can buy one for $13 on Amazon.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, it's so hard because everyone's going to have different levels of how they're doing it at home. You know, I could just get nervous that someone's buying something off Amazon, they're leaving it, it's not getting cleansed properly or sterilized or maybe they do it right the first two times and then they don't wash it right the third time or whatever. Um or the needles start to get dull and they don't recognize it. So I just feel like there's a huge margin for error in at-home microneedling and I'm probably biased because I've seen several infections from people doing mm. at-home microneedling with weird bacteria, like, you know, bacteria that's from like
0: farm animals. And I'm like, how did this get in your, (laughs) how did this get on your face? Is the idea though, that we have like a lot of kind of weird bacteria on the surface, surface of our skin. And if we're microneedling, we're kind of pushing that inside where we don't want it.
1: No, we have like, we definitely have a ton of different bacteria on our skin, but it's generally not dangerous, even if it gets under our skin, except for certain types of staph bacteria, but more it's like, you know, your pet was outside and they crawled on your counter and your microneedling device was on your counter. And then you touched it with your hand, which you used to wipe your butt. And like, it's all just, it it ends up spiraling a little bit. The other thing with at-home microneedling is the depth of the needle that you can purchase online, I think is just 025 millimeters. So it's not very deep. So you can get some like very light exfoliation with that, but I don't think you're going to be able to get the same degree that you could get in office. But if you're really careful um, and you listen to your skin and if things are going wrong, you get the right help. I don't think it's necessarily dangerous. You just kind of have to know what kind of person you are and how you're going to do that for yourself.
0: Okay. So you mentioned microneedling and you mentioned it with radiofrequency. Can you just walk us through what that actually means?
1: Yeah, of course. So radiofrequency is a type of energy. You're essentially not just traumatizing the skin, which is what microneedling is, but all those little needles are essentially delivering radiofrequency heat. It's basically heat deep into the skin. And so you're not just creating trauma from the physical part of the needle, but from the heat coming off of it as well. It is pretty uncomfortable. You have to be very well numbed to have that treatment done but it is definitely more effective than microneedling on its own because you're adding this other type of trauma to induce collagen formation.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask, can you like explain in a tiny nutshell like why we want to induce trauma because that doesn't sound <laughs> ideal. Yes,
1: exactly right. So you're essentially trying to induce what we call a wound healing response. So microneedling in general is called collagen induction therapy. So you're trying to create controlled wounding or controlled injury of the skin to rev your skin up to essentially heal itself and then overproduce collagen, which is the same kind of thing we create in scars to sort of fill in pores or tighten the skin or just make your skin more plump and more bouncy and all those amazing things that we look for aesthetically that make our skin look pretty. But you're essentially trying to create a controlled wound environment so that when your skin heals, it heals better than it was before. Kind of like when you break a bone and then it's stronger afterwards because it heals better. It's kind of what you're doing with skin.
0: Can you like, I don't know, like wear your skin out with that kind of stuff though? Like I, with exfoliating, for instance, I've always wondered, I know our exfoliation like slows as we age. And then I'm like, if we only have a certain amount of times of refreshing our skin cells, and then we're like forcing it to do it when we're younger, Are we going to look older in 20 (laughs) years? Is that a thing or is that just in my head?
1: No, no. Yeah. That's a really common question. Like, are you going to do too many times of cell turnover where your skin gets pooped out prematurely? Yeah. And that really only happens with cells that are sort of at their end stage of development. So for your top, you have to think of your top layer of skin. The very top layers are like, they're what we call differentiated. They are true skin cells. They can't turn into anything else. But the bottom layer of your skin, those cells are more like stem cells. They they can kind of have, they have more potential. And so they can cycle, you know, thousands of times versus your top layer of skin, which can only cycle like 60 times before it gets pooped out. So you're generating skin from something that essentially has like an endless reservoir. So you don't have to worry about it.
0: Okay. So like if I lived to be 300 years old, I could still exfoliate as much as I want. And I wouldn't ever look like older for that.
1: Exactly. I think 300, we might be pushing it. But yes, by that time, we might be at a thousand cycles, thousands of cycles. But yes, you you could go way beyond the normal human lifespan right life now and, and not worry about it at all.
0: Okay. What about a crepey looking like chest or neck area?
1: <sighs> yes. Are you You must be sitting like be a fly on the wall in my recent cosmetic consultations. You know, <laughs> So crepey chest, crepey neck can be due to a lot of things. It's usually due to sun damage. And you just have to think the skin is multiple layers. And when you have crepey skin, it's usually not just a function of the skin being thin, but also the fatty tissue underneath Mm. also being thin. And even sometimes like the muscular layer being sort of stretched out over time.
0: Oh, I saw this on your personal treatments. You had like a diagram of our neck and it has this like big flat, like, sinewy muscle that goes yes, underneath
1: it. the platysma. So that's like a, <laughs> a sheet like muscle that sort of like, comes up around your neck and like grabs onto your lower face and just pulls it down over time. Exactly. Um, and so if you can relax that muscle and get it to fall away from the skin and not engage over time, you can actually get the skin to drape better over your neck. So using Botox injections to relax that muscle at the deepest level is like the first step to addressing a crepey neck. And then you can do things like micro Botox, which is more diluted Botox, more superficially in the skin, which actually gets like the hair follicles and the oil glands to sort of relax. Uh, Hmm. and look a lot smoother too. And then of course, laser treatments to resurface the skin and stimulate collagen. So everything that you do on the face, you can also do on the neck and chest, but you have to be way more conservative. The neck and the chest are much more delicate. They are terrible at healing compared to the face because they don't have as many hair follicles and we regenerate from around our hair follicles. So you just have to be so careful. And when I see complications in my office from people having treatments out, you know, from outside coming in for help, it's often because the neck and chest have been treated too aggressively.
0: So if somebody was listening and they're like, "Ah, I don't want to do that. Is that just like asking their dermatologist first trying to find a really good aesthetic dermatologist, but also then asking their dermatologist to like do a conservative treatment course and see how it responds?
1: Yeah. And you know, a cosmetic dermatologist or an aesthetic dermatologist should know, like they know that these areas need to be treated much more carefully. And I mean, the Other things you can do are like Retin-A or Tretinoin on your neck and chest, and that will also help sort of fortify your skin there. Um, But you have to be really careful because, again, they're more sensitive areas. You're more likely to have side effects like peeling and flaking and irritation when you use that on your neck and chest area.
0: So the crepiness, like, and I know exactly what it is because I feel like I've started to get like a little bit of it on my chest. It's like, is that, it looks like it's like thin. Is it the skin getting thinner and draping Mm -hmm.
1: worse? Yes. Exactly. It's basically thinning out of all the layers of the skin from the fatty layer all the way up to the most superficial layer, the epidermis. Yeah.
0: So is that something you'd ever do filler for to just make it like thicker or plumper? Or no?
1: <laughs> yeah, kind of. So we use something called biostimulatory fillers, which are not really used there to volumize, but they actually Uh, it's almost like planting little seeds that induce more collagen stimulation deeper in. So we definitely do that across the chest, especially like larger chested women who start to get those wrinkles on their chest if they're side sleepers Mm. from the boobs kind of knocking together. But yes, we do use filler, but not necessarily necessarily to like create plumpness there, but to induce more collagen deeper in those tissues.
0: Okay. What about large pores? I'm personally invested in this one. The first time I met Zach's (laughs) family, his cousin came up to me and was like, you have the biggest pores I have ever seen. And she was like, she was like 11. So I couldn't be mad at her, but it was devastating. I wouldn't be mad. (laughs) It's it's stuck with me ever since. And I don't think I thought about my pores before then. That's
1: always so hard. So pores, I think of like, they are truly an anatomical feature. It's like saying I have bigger ankles or I have hip dips or I have a, uh, you know, C-sized breasts or whatever. Oh God, you're going to just teach me. You're going to be like, you have to learn to love your pores. <laughs> Not that you have to learn to love them, but you can <laughs> optimize them. And that if your goal is to truly shrink them, you will never really be able to do it because it's a fixed structure in the skin. Now pores can stretch out over time. So you have to think of it like a pore is like a little cup in your skin. And I think of it as like sort of being made of clay. And as you get older, that clay sort of like thins out and it kind of wants to open up a little bit more and fill up with debris and things like that. So you absolutely can do things to sort of fortify your skin barrier like lasers and anything that induces collagen, whether that's topical or a treatment to sort of keep that nice and tight. And there are procedures that show have been shown to reduce the appearance of pores, but that doesn't mean their actual size is getting smaller. But like things like micro Botox, so Botox injected superficially into the skin can shrink the appearance of pores and then some laser resurfacing can do that as well.
0: Okay. So if I keep going with my IPL, is that going to help my pores?
1: It might. It might help you maintain them. We might switch you over to something called Clear and Brilliant at some point, which is a very mild resurfacing laser that has actually been proven in studies to reduce the appearance of pores. So I always like it when there's a clinical trial that shows like, yes, these people actually had smaller appearing pores when they were analyzed visually after a certain number of treatments. So that would be, that'd probably be where I would go after IPL has cleared up most of the browns.
0: If somebody's listening and they're like, I don't feel like I have any like concrete things to address, but I also don't feel like I have, I like to call it like rich person skin, like yes. where somebody's just like <laughs> very glowy and they look just really beautiful. Their skin looks dewy and gorgeous. If they just want that and they don't feel like they have that, what would you recommend? I
1: would say probably clear and brilliant treatment. So that is a super light resurfacing treatment. It's usually done as frequently as every two weeks, but can be spread out however people want. I personally do it like four times a year. And it really is just sort of doing some like light exfoliation, stimulating collagen, giving you that glow. It's what they say celebrities do like a week before a red carpet to just sort of like get that little –
0: Rich person's, rich person's skin. skin. Yeah. yeah, I love
1: I, that's that's kind a of thing. Fully, it's a
0: real thing. It is
1: a thing. You can get that with IPL actually too. So a lot of people who get IPL treatments will notice their skin gets a lot glowier and bouncier afterward as well. But it's usually some type of device that's heating the skin, which is causing it to be plumper uh, and just have more collagen.
0: You all know that I love smoothies. I could talk about them for days. I share smoothie recipes pretty much every week on my Instagram, and one of the things you all ask me about all the time is protein powder. Specifically, what do you do if you hate the taste of protein powder? And look, I get it. The vast majority of protein powders taste nasty. I only have three or four proteins that I reach for regularly, and one of my favorites is Garden of Life grass-fed collagen. One serving of collagen has 18 grams of protein, which, when added to my green smoothies with some healthy fat like avocado, is critical in keeping me full through lunchtime. Bones can accumulate all sorts of heavy metals and toxins, which is why the most important thing with collagen is to buy it from a really high-quality source. Garden of Life has been the only collagen that I've trusted for years I don't want to throw any other brands under the bus, but the stories I've heard from in the industry about where their cows come from are pretty terrible, and some brands don't even know. Not Garden of Life. In addition to regularly testing for heavy metals and all of the other bad stuff, they actually source their collagen from cattle herds that are much smaller and more traceable. While you can't really buy organic collagen, Garden of Life is the closest that I've found. The cows are raised to strict standards and aren't fed grass that contains any form of herbicides, pesticides, or glyphosate. Beyond all of that, it is one of the most affordable collagens on the market, with a much more reasonable price point than other leading brands, which is important to me since I use it in my smoothies a number of times a week. Because it's flavorless and dissolves so well, you can mix it into pretty much anything from tea to overnight oats to my cookie dough bites. It's just like a magical little powder that you can use to amp up the protein of pretty much anything. And yes, studies do show that it can help with joint health, hair, skin, and nails, which is great. My nails truly grow obnoxiously fast now, but the main reason that I love it is that it's a one-ingredient protein powder, which I feel like people don't appreciate enough. You can find Garden of Life Grass-Fed Collagen at Whole Foods or on Amazon, but the best way to support this podcast is to click the link in the show notes. It won't cost you anything extra, but it helps let Garden of Life know how you found them, and I massively appreciate it. If you have any questions about protein or collagen or Garden of Life, hit me up on Instagram. I am always happy to chat. All right, let's get back into the episode. Okay, so we've mentioned Botox and fillers and things like that a few times, but I want to get into that both from a safety perspective and from a, like, how are we using it perspective. So my stance on Botox for a very long time was that if a single drop of this got in our water supply and we drank it, we would die mm-hmm. because it's like a poison, you know? Yeah, it is. How can I justify putting it in my face? And the fact, I think that, like, some people find it comforting that it goes away after a few months, but I'm like, that means it's going through my liver and that doesn't feel good to me. So how... How do I square that in my brain?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, one thing to think about is when things are processed in the skin, when they're used, like Botox, for example, and then they make their way through your system and eventually end up out of your system, they're not going through your system intact. So they're binding to receptors in your nerves and they're exerting their effects there. And then they're sort of dissipating, but they're not going through your system. They're not getting into your bloodstream. They're not going in through your gut uh, and they're not going in whole. So yes, I would not take a shot of like Botox toxin like through my mouth, but I would take a million in my forehead. And it's basically just because how you're processing it, like how you're taking it in. Mm. But yes, I think, I think that's normal to feel like, oh, I can't really wrap my head around like why it's so unsafe in certain forms and so safe in other,
0: in other ways. Well, how are we like confident that Botox is safe?
1: So I think that has to do with the, like, there have been so many clinical trials on it. So it's been FDA approved since 1989. So, it, you know, we've had it for over 30 years being injected. It's injected in like, I think over hundred countries in the world at this point now, there are so many clinical studies on it. And there's so many people annually, that get injected that if big issues were coming up, I think the thought in the medical community is like they would come up by now. It's been over 30 years that we've had this around. That's not to say that something can't come up later. Like that is always, always a possibility. It's just the number of treatments, the dose that people have gotten over time. I mean, it's highly unlikely, I would say. And the other thing, too, is there just becomes there's become more and more uses for it. So, yes, I use it aesthetically in my practice, but people use it for bladder spasms, sweating, drooling migraines migraines, you know neck spasms uh back pain like there's so many other ways we're using it and actually in much higher doses in and usually in those settings that the small amount that we're injecting aesthetically doesn't feel threatening
0: do we know going back to that thing we talked about lasers like do we know exactly what's happening on a cellular level in your body and how it's clearing your body on a cellular level and like all of those things Yes. So that mechanism is like
1: very, very well vetted, like down to like the molecular structures, the proteins that it's binding in your nerves, how it's getting processed, how that mechanism eventually is overcome because we know, you know, Botox is not permanent, right? So like we know exactly how your body is able to sort of move past the Botox you've been injected and overcome that response so that it eventually needs it again. Uh, So yes, we do have that like mechanistically worked down pretty much to a T. Are there any negative effects of Botox that you know of? Yes, totally. I mean, long-term effects, generally no. So in aesthetic studies, there haven't been any like long-term problems from people who've had Botox, but sure for like short-term things, absolutely. So, you know, it paralyzes muscles temporarily. So if that Botox gets injected maybe between your eyes and it travels to a muscle around your eye that it's not supposed to, you can have like pretty severe drooping of your eyelids or things like that. No, oh, I
0: think I saw somebody on Instagram who like went viral for having one of yes. her eyes. Oh my droop. gosh.
1: That was so hard because I had so many people <laughs> messaging me afterwards. Like, how do you know this is not going to happen to me? But a lot of it has to do with technique. And I mean, the fact of the matter is if you inject thousands and thousands and thousands of people with Botox over your career... If you don't have someone with a complication, it just means your patients haven't been honest with you because it, it does happen, but it's, it's rare. And I think the other things to know are that it, the best thing about it is like there's no permanent changes that we know of that come from it. So that's really also reassuring that if someone does have a complication, you know, it's not going to be lasting.
0: What about, I heard that like if you paralyze some muscles, it can make other muscles work more and then your face can get kind of like funky looking as a result. (laughs) Is that a thing?
1: Yeah. So that, you know, we think of those as what we call like compensatory or compensation with other muscle movements and that can certainly happen. But I think that's usually the result of either an inexperienced injector or a patient who um, maybe is kind of stubborn with their injector and says like, listen, I only want you to inject it here. And I've had mm. this with, with people and I'm like, well, you you really need to inject the muscles around your eye too, because if you don't, you're going to start pulling with those more and those are going to bug mm. you more over time. And And now I just tell my patient, I'm like, if you're not going to do the whole enchilada, like I can't just give you the tortilla because you're going to be not satisfied. So it's important to also when you're counseling your patients to really understand like What's going to be better for them long term and just advise them appropriately? But you can definitely start compensating A lot of people will notice it around the nose. So there's something called Bunny lines around the nose when people scrunch their nose up. and Nicole Kidman used to get called out for this all the time where her whole upper face was like frozen with Botox, which also isn't the way we want to do it. But then her bunny lines around her nose were super prominent,
0: and that's kind of like a dead a dead giveaway too so if like if you're doing my Botox, would you like rotate it around a little bit to or is it just? Are you rotating so that the compensatory muscles are freezing and vice versa, or is it just doing it in the right way the first time?
1: Kind of doing it in the right way the first time and just having an understanding of how these muscles interact and interplay so that if I'm treating one area, I know I also need to put a little bit up higher in your forehead or whatever to make sure that you're not, you don't start pulling from this muscle or that muscle. So just kind of knowing like what, if I do this, this could happen. I'm going to sort of preempt that by putting a little bit in this area. And that comes from just experience, I think, more than anything. But there are I have had patients who their muscles do some weird compensatory thing that I could never have predicted. But it's also why I tell my patients, if you have any questions about how your Botox is settling, two weeks, you come back, we talk about it like you should never feel embarrassed or weird to bring those things up. And the best thing is you can always fix it. So that that's the other thing.
0: You fix it with more Botox usually?
1: Usually with more Botox because usually it means there's a muscle that's become overactive. And so you can usually Mm. just put an extra little drop somewhere and sort of calm down whatever that extra muscle is. Because yeah, I, I call them my creative patients where they're like, I'm like, wow, you really tried to work around your Botox here. It doesn't happen often, but when it does, patients are like freaking out, which is normal because they're getting yeah, a response yeah, to did expect. Yeah. But that's why I try to empower my patients to be like, listen, if anything looks weird, just come back. Like just do, you know, there's no issue with that.
0: And is Botox like the only way to seriously deal with fine lines and wrinkles or is there anything else that will be maybe not as effective, but like will be effective in a real way?
1: So I think of Botox as treatment for dynamic lines. So lines or wrinkles that form from moving your face. So it's not going to help anything that's just from pure sagging, but no. So a lot of patients will be like, what can I do for my crow's feet besides Botox? Like, is there an eye cream or is there a laser or something? And not really because... Even if you fortify the skin there an amazing amount, as soon as you start smiling or wincing or making a face and engaging those muscles, you're going to go right back to folding the skin and causing the wrinkle. So you really have to get the wrinkle at the muscle movement level. There are some topicals now. There's one called arguraline that's supposed to like penetrate the skin and sort of paralyze the muscles in the same way that Botox can, but it just hasn't been shown to be quite as effective for that yet. But there might be some topicals that come down the line one day that can do that to a much
0: lesser degree. That's interesting. I picture like, it doesn't sound comfortable. It sounds like when you like put glue on your face <laughs> with head, and you're just like, eh, like it's frozen, but does it look cute? Right. And
1: I, I mean, you hope that it, at the muscular level, you won't feel it because you don't really have nerves there, but yes, it, it might also look odd.
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure. Okay. What about filler? Is that, are we totally comfortable that filler is safe in the same way that you are with Botox?
1: Yes. And even more so for filler in some ways, because it's what I would say is like an inert substance. It's not enacting any type of, you're not trying to get the muscle to respond a certain way. You're really using it as a gel to volumize, at least what I call hyaluronic acid fillers. These are the fillers that most people use. It's the ones most people have heard of, Juvederm, Restylane, those types of things where you're not trying to get it to exert a power on a muscle or get it to do anything. You're just using it to volumize or provide structure. Really, where the safety component comes in with filler is that it is thick and it has the ability to clog a blood vessel um, if injected into one. And that's when, you know, we were talking about all the different cosmetic things that we can do in our office and we briefly touched on fillers. And I, you, I remember you just being like, Oh, that sounds scary. And it, that, it can be scary because if it gets in a blood vessel, it can block flow and the the most dangerous thing would be if it got in a vessel that supplies blood to your eye, which would cause blindness. Um, So the safety of filler isn't with the product itself, but with the injection technique and what can kind of come with an inexperienced injector or something like that.
0: Yeah, I've actually heard. So I asked about under eye filler. I'm not a good candidate for it because the uh, whatever anatomy of my face, uh, (laughs) which I'm very bummed about. But (laughs) I've heard that under eye filler is actually like one of the more dangerous types of filler because of that. And also, um, the nose job fillers, like quite dangerous, maybe for the same reason. Is that true?
1: Yeah. So I actually think under eye filler is not as dangerous as some people might think, but under eye filler has the highest chance to me of looking bad just because you, it has to do so much with like The proper candidate selection for it. Um, Areas that tend to be high risk are anywhere around the nose. And that's just because that's where the blood vessels that supply the back of your eye can can really live. So anything at the base of the nose, across the bridge of the nose, or anything between the eyebrows. So some people have really deep creases between their brows that will not respond to Botox and need to have filler there. But those are the areas where they're, they're very high risk. And it's why I don't inject those areas personally in my practice, even though I have all the safety oh, wow. technique and everything. It's just something I've chosen not to do because I like to sleep that night.
0: That's really interesting to know that, especially if you go to like a Medi spa or something and they're offering to do those treatments, like maybe run away from that.
1: When I see that, it actually, it terrifies me because I think it's not just when you're getting your treatment, it's not just about aesthetically what can that injector achieve for you, but it's. If there is a complication, even though that is a super low risk, is the person treating you 100% prepared, equipped, and trained to handle that complication? Right. And that's what makes me really nervous when I see that.
0: That's why I like am like go to a medical doctor because I I like the idea that I think I asked I was like asking you stuff that like you're like well I don't think there's any way you could bleed out but if you started to like I could handle that <laughs> yeah and exactly I was like, so that feels good <laughs> like <laughs> totally <laughs> Thank or, <you> know. <laughs> yeah or if you
1: like if your heart stopped beating or if you know anything that happened if you fainted and you hit your head and you, you know right. you were bleeding like or if you got an infection I can prescribe you things like right there are people out there who inject and they can't even prescribe medication and that that makes me a little nervous.
0: So I've heard about filler migrating. And then also I've heard this is a different level and I'm sure you're going to tell me I'm wrong, but like it getting (laughs) into your brain, is that a possibility? Can it cross the blood brain barrier? No, it cannot cross the blood brain barrier. The only place I could
1: imagine it could get into your brain is that if you were doing some procedure very close to the eye and you like got it behind the eyeball. But again, like that is not happening to someone who has any experience whatsoever injecting. But migration, absolutely. So these are gels, you know, and they, they sit in certain planes of the face, but they absolutely can move over time. I find that I notice migration the most in people who have probably had too much filler. Um, So they've sort of maxed, you you think of the face as like compartments. uh, And if you sort of max out or overfill a compartment, the filler will take the path of least resistance. And so it can move. And I think most often we notice this in people's lips where they've tried to fill their lips Mm. too much. And then they end up with this like filler mustache situation. Is pretty unattractive. Um, And so, and it happened, you know, it can be an injection technique, but it it can be the product, it can be the person's anatomy. So sometimes someone will come to me and they have a filler mustache, and I, you know, I do a lot of corrective work in my practice, and they'll say, Can you fix this? Oh my God, my injector was so inexperienced. And I don't, I can't be so quick to blame the injector because I've seen it happen even with the best injectors. But yes, it can move. The benefit of filler is that it's dissolvable. So you can inject an enzyme that pretty much immediately melts it away. So that, that is the benefit is that you're not stuck with it forever. And I think that's the appeal of fillers is it's not like plastic surgery where if you have a bad facelift, you're kind of stuck with it. Yeah. You can change things.
0: What are some, we've talked about under eye filler and then we've talked about it for the 11 lines. Are there Mm -hmm. any other sort of like unique uses for filler or Botox? Like I know people use Botox to like balance the asymmetries of their face or we talked about the neck thing, but like, are there unique uses of either of those that you feel like more people should know about?
1: I know it's so hard to know because it's like what feel it probably doesn't feel unique to me because I probably do it a lot, but I'm trying to think of areas where we use filler a lot. So I use filler a lot at the base of the nose to support the nose because especially Hmm. women, we lose a lot of bony mass as we get older and our noses actually start to sink into our face and our upper lips begin to elongate. Huh. And so using it there as like a support thing where no one goes comes to your you and says, Hey, can you put filler at the base of my nose? (laughs) Um, but it's a really nice place to sort of support the face. Um, filler in the temples, I think, is another place that people are starting mm. to realize can be really helpful. But there are a lot of women who start to what we call skeletonize over time. where They get really mm. hollow in their temples and it it, it really ages somebody, especially if uh, they don't have a lot of body fat or something like that. So using filler to sort of fill out the temporal hollows um, is another place that I tend to use it a lot. And then just contouring the face, you know the chin or the earlobes. So people who have saggy earlobes from wearing earrings, we put it in the earlobes to sort of support it. So yeah, there are a lot of areas I guess you can get creative. If I have a little leftover in the syringe, I usually look around on their face to see if we can use it (laughs) somewhere.
0: (laughs) This week's podcast is brought to you by Athletic Greens, one of my favorite supplements. I discovered Athletic Greens, I don't know, maybe five years ago now, and they've been an absolute lifesaver ever since. They make an all-in-one superfood powder that contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more that all work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, support energy and focus, aid with gut health and digestion, and support a healthy immune system. You all may know that I am addicted to green smoothies, and I basically consider Athletic Greens to be my replacement green smoothie on any day that I can't make one or just need an extra boost. They're an absolute must when I travel. I honestly can't remember the last time that I took a trip without them, and they are the difference between feeling good when I travel and that kind of like icky feeling you just get from not getting in all of your nutrients, eating a lot of fried food, all of that. Also, this is anecdotal, but if I take athletic greens when I travel, I never get constipated. I used to get so constipated when I traveled. Honestly, if you are ever having digestive issues or trouble pooping, Drink a big old glass of Athletic Greens, and then, well, you tell me what happens. Beyond that, for my caffeine-free babies out there, this powder is hands down the best coffee substitute that I have ever had. I know a lot of people think of green powder as a morning thing, but hear me out. Try a scoop of Athletic Greens at around 3 in the afternoon, right when you're hitting that afternoon slump. You'll get a surge of this amazing, non-jittery, clean-feeling energy, and it's actually real energy because you're fueling your body. As a person who applauds growth and change, I absolutely love the fact that Athletic Greens continues to obsessively improve this one holistic formula based on the latest research, producing 53 53 improvements over the last decade and counting. They invest in the most absorbable and natural source of each ingredient and go above and beyond in third-party testing to ensure their customers continue to receive the highest quality and best daily nutritional habits on the planet. It's lifestyle-friendly whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, and it contains less than one gram of sugar without compromising on taste. And can we talk about taste for a second? People always ask me if it actually tastes good, and I genuinely respond, yes, it does. It's faintly sweet, but not in a cloying or artificial way, and it's really fresh. It's actually a flavor that I've come to crave, both because it's tasty unto itself and because I've come to associate it with how good I feel after I drink it. I've Pavloved myself. Whether you're looking for peak performance or better health or need more nutrients in your diet, covering your bases with Athletic Greens makes investing in your energy, immunity, and gut health simple, tasty, and efficient. And... Right now, Athletic Greens has got you for year-round immune support by offering my audience a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase if you use my link today. I love Athletic Greens vitamin D because first of all, many of us are deficient in vitamin D, especially going into these winter months, and second, it's combined with K2, which research has found helps the D transport calcium to your bones where it's needed rather than calcifying in your arteries. Visit athleticgreens.com slash healthier together, like the name of this podcast and join health experts, athletes, and health conscious go-getters around the world who make a daily commitment to their health. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash healthier together and get your free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs today. I cannot wait to hear how you like it and how good you feel. Now let's get back to the episode. What is the most effective transformative thing we could do at home on our own?
1: Wear sunscreen every day.
0: One million percent. Not I, know, to I wish I and- could go back in time and like <laughs> tell my – It's so annoying because it does – It Like I feel better about my skin long-term, but I also feel like after a few months when I started wearing it every day, I literally noticed a difference in how my skin looked. And I just got so angry. I didn't wear sunscreen regularly until my 30s. Oh, yeah. And I'm just like, how did I – why? Like why did I not just do it? We had
1: to, I just don't think the awareness was there. Like I'm with you. Like I went through my whole like 20s like laying out. I you know, I was a swimmer my whole life. I like I was tan. Like people are like, "Oh, did you ever go to a tanning booth growing up?" And I'm like, "No, because I was always tan just from being outside all the time." <laughs> um so yeah, I just don't think we knew. I'm very jealous of the next generation who is growing up aware of sunscreen mm. and, and how beneficial sun protection can be. Because prevention is is huge. I mean, you just look at people who naturally have more melanin in their skin, who have darker skin at baseline, who naturally have some protection from the sun, and you just see the differences in how their skin ages. And that is a huge reflection on the, uh, the value of sun protection.
0: And do you feel like you need that all the time? Like you wake up If you're getting sun through the window, how do you feel about blue light from screens? Is sunscreen kind of just like if you are awake, you should have sunscreen on your face?
1: I feel like you kind of have to find your happy medium with it. Like if I'm like lounging around in the morning and I'm not going outside and yeah, I have some windows in my apartment, I'm generally not putting sunscreen on right away. The amount of sunscreen, I mean, amount of sunscreen, the amount of like UV light you're getting through windows is not nothing, but it's not a ton. So yes, you're probably doing some very mild like anti-aging by having sunscreen on indoors. but I mean in terms of like skin cancer prevention or anything like that, that's not the type of sun that's causing you problems. If you want to be like a sunscreen Nazi and just get up and put it on. Yeah. I mean, it is going to benefit you to have it on all the time, but that's not how I do it personally, because that just doesn't fit with my lifestyle. And I don't want to burn out on sunscreen, which people do. They just, they're like, you know, this is too much of a pain. It's too much of a bother. Like if you can put it on before you go outside every day, that's a huge win.
0: What about the blue light thing? Is that, is that damaging our skin? No. So there's no data to show that blue light
1: from screens or tablets or anything like that is problematic unless you have dark skin and you have pigmentation problems. So we know it can contribute to pigmentation in people who have darker skin. There is blue light from the sun. So visible light that gets you know emitted from the sun, that's problematic. And you want to prevent against that. But in terms of like the blue light from devices, that has never been shown, even in people with darker skin, to, to cause problems.
0: And can I just play devil's advocate for a second and say that like, is that because it's only been in the last decade and even increasingly in the last like five years that we've even had so much blue light exposure? Like we went from like 10 years ago, I feel like I had my Motorola flip phone most of the time (laughs) and I was on my computer sometimes, but not really. But now I feel like I spend my entire day on a screen of some sort.
1: That's true. It is. We definitely have more blue light exposure than in the past, but if we look at how much blue light you get in a day, 99% of that blue light is still the blue light coming from a, the sun. So even if you're sitting in front of a screen, the power of that blue light, the intensity of that blue light is not generally enough to like make a meaningful dent in mm-hmm. the overall exposure that we
0: have if if that makes sense. Like the bucket's full. You might be adding drops to the bucket, but the bucket's like splashy with water already. Exactly, exactly right. Okay, I'm going to let you go in a second, but I just realized I have one other thing I want to get your feedback on while I have you, which is hands. I So when we were talking about sunscreen, I remembered this because I always do the thing that like, I don't know, you learn in Cosmo when you're younger, when you put your sunscreen on your face, you like put on your hands. But then I wash my hands like 15 times a day <laughs> And I'm not going to put sunscreen back on my hands. And I notice my hands so much because I'm always filming these videos and my hands are in them. Yeah. Cause I'm preparing food and I just feel like they're like, they've taken a beating, especially over the last year. So what can I do for them? That's, not putting sunscreen on 15 times. Yes,
1: exactly. So obviously sun protection is going to be your biggest thing. But again, you have to think of like, when is the most meaningful sun exposure happening? And that's like when you're outside on walks or when you're driving. Um, so, you know, like a sun protective glove or sleeve in your car is so embarrassing. Do oh you without. wear
0: driving gloves? I do. Yes. <laughs> Oh my God. That's I'm so glad we got to the point in the podcast where I got to find out that you were driving
1: gloves. I'm such a lady. Um, (laughs) It's actually so embarrassing for my husband. I think he's usually very supportive (laughs) of my sun protective behaviors, but I have a driving visor that I wear in the car. I have my gloves. If I'm going on a long trip on the highway by myself, I have a sun mask that I wear. Wow. Yeah, like a real psycho. Um, So those are like (laughs) all of the things I have. But I think gloves are like probably the best thing. Or even like when you're walking, if you're wearing long sleeves and you can put your thumb through the little hole and kind of have the back of your hands protected. But every device that we use on someone's face can be done on the hands. So I IPL hands and I Mm. laser resurface hands and I chemical peel hands all the time. Because I always tell my patients, you want all of your exposed skin to be on the same age page. And if you, if they're not, Mm. it's just a dead giveaway. Like you don't want Crypt Keeper hands and 20 year old face.
0: Where does one get driving gloves and driving masks
1: and things like that? So there's, there are a few like sun protective companies that are really good. There's one called Cooley Bar, like C-O-O-L-I-B-A-R. And they make great gloves and masks and things like that. But I think there's just, even if on Amazon, there's a lot of UPF protective clothing now. So the mask is like a real extreme. And I only whip that out if I know that I'm not going to see anybody
0: that I know. So that's like long drives by myself. But I do that. I mean, I live a nomad life. Like that's like yeah. once a month I bought I mean, Zach has to see me, but you know, he's still yeah, worst. You know,
1: our husbands <laughs> accept us for who we are, hopefully. Um,
0: okay.
1: but the gloves are the gloves are a big deal and they can make a huge difference, especially if you get to the point in your life where you're investing in cosmetic procedures. You always want to mm. be protecting your investment. And so those types of things, it just it just ensures that you're protected. Cause sunscreen can be faulty, whereas a, a glove is always going to offer you the same degree of protection no matter what.
0: Amazing. I love that. Is there any other like, could you leave us with one other like weird thing that I wouldn't have thought of like wearing driving gloves that'll just make us, you know, glowy and gorgeous? <gasps> oh my gosh. I wish I could. I think they're, <laughs>
1: gloves are like probably like the best kept Your secret. weirdest one. <laughs> yeah. I think, so. I mean, in terms of like embarrassing for sure. Yeah. I think the biggest thing is just being consistent with everything that you do, whether that's procedures or skincare or anything, and just having the right expectation going into any intervention of what that intervention can offer you. Is this a preventative intervention? Are we trying to reverse
0: things? Mm. All of that. Awesome. Well, where can people find you? I feel like you're on like every platform now. I feel like I, I didn't know you were on YouTube <laughs> and then I'm like watching all your YouTube videos. Oh, and... thank you.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I think the two main places you can find me are on Instagram at Dr. Samantha Ellis. And then I have a YouTube channel, which is just Dr. Samantha Ellis as well. I tried to keep it simple there. Those are places where I sort of like walk people through my life as a dermatologist and then give tips and product recommendations and all of that fun stuff.
0: Yeah, I was watching you I was going to ask you about it on here but we ran out of time so people should go watch the video about like all of the treatments that you've done personally because I do think that that's really interesting to be like, yes, you're talking about them but what have you actually tried, you know, yourself. Yeah, and I've tried a lot. So that's on your YouTube. It's <laughs> like on my YouTube. Yeah, <laughs> that's on your YouTube. And then people also because you're my dermatologist, we will be trying out different stuff so you can always uh come to my Instagram and you'll get to see all the weird stuff that you're going to do to me. Oh my God. You're going to do amazing. I'm so
1: excited (laughs) for this. We're going to have a great time.
0: Um, Amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing all of your wisdom. I'm going to go literally hang up and get some driving gloves.
1: I love it. Do it. And if you need a link, you know, text me.
0: All right. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. (laughs) Of course. Take care. Have a good one. I hope you loved this episode with Dr. Ellis. I hope you learned a lot. I hope you're on your way to buy some driving gloves. They are, I think, a game changer. I was honestly mind-blowed when I heard about that. I love skin protection with like clothes and stuff too because while I love my sunscreen, it's just kind of like sticky and you're washing your hands and I don't know, it's just like a less nice user experience, I would say. Don't forget to head on over to Instagram if you would like to win a free virtual cosmetic skin consultation with Dr. Ellis. Just make sure that you're following both of us. I am at Liz Moody and she is at Dr. Samantha Ellis. And then leave a comment on my in feed about this episode saying one thing that you learned. Also, if you did love this episode, I would so appreciate a quick rating or review on whatever podcast platform that you listen to. And I would so appreciate if you would share the episode with somebody that you think would benefit from all of Dr. Ellis's amazing wisdom. All right. I love you. I will see you on the next episode of the Healthier Together podcast. Okay. You know what stat blows my mind? People in the U.S. take about 20,000 breaths per day and spend an average of 90%, 90% of their time indoors. And that indoor air can be up to 100 times more polluted than outdoor air, according to the EPA. Indoor air pollutants can cause respiratory symptoms like sneezing, congestion, scratchy throat, and even more serious health problems like lung and heart disease. I talked about this with a world-famous doctor friend years ago, and I was like, it is awful. What do I do? And she said, you need a high-quality air purifier, and you need to keep one in any room that you spend a ton of time in which is why I am so excited to introduce you to AirDoctor. AirDoctor goes above and beyond the HEPA standard, which requires that 99.97% of particles at 0.3 microns be captured by a filter. AirDoctor uses an ultra HEPA filter that was independently tested and proven to remove at least 99.99% of particles as small as 0.003 microns. That is 100 times smaller than the HEPA standard. This includes allergens, pollen, pet dander. For any other pet parents who are allergic to their babies, this makes the biggest difference in my allergies with Bella. Highly recommend for that alone. This includes dust mites, mold spores, and even bacteria and viruses. Also, if you live somewhere that is coming up on potential fires this summer, please, please, please get an air doctor so you have it ready. Breathing in smoke is awful for your lungs. And as somebody who lives in California, it gives me such peace of mind that I have my air doctor ready to go. We have a few, but if you are starting with one, keep it in the bedroom. That way you're breathing great air for at least a third of your life and it'll help you get better sleep, which will have so many downstream positive effects. And as a little bonus extra, it has such a nice white noise sound. It actually helps me fall asleep and stay asleep. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you do not love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Head to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code LizMoody and you'll receive up to $300 off air purifiers. And this part is exclusive to Liz Moody podcast listeners. You will receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. Lock in this special offer by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use promo code Liz Moody.